you want to make your way in, grab a seat. There's some handouts on the back if you want those. Good to see you all here this morning. This morning is really just a one-off equipping hour um, that we're calling Rediscover Church, which is basically stolen from this book. So Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. And really this morning, what I just want to do is walk through the main structure of the book, just give some additional comments. That's what you have on the notes back there is just their structure. I put in some verses, um, not that they necessarily included, but ones that I just wanted to add. So I didn't want to just give a summary of here's what the book says, you know, give a critical review, stuff like that, because you'd be bored to death. Um, I'm just giving a lot of, you know, some of just my additional input. This book um, was really a partnership between uh, Nine Marks Ministries and Crossway Publishing. They shipped out 20 free copies to any church that requested it. Um, So they sent out, I think, hundreds of thousands of these books, And I requested it, and Jeremy requested it without knowing, so we ended up with 40. Um, And that's what we have here. So I have one, I think maybe, you know, one or two slipped out or something like that. But we have about 40 copies that are sitting on my shelf doing absolutely nothing. Um, So we want to give those out. What this book is really uh, targeting, the, the purpose for it, is someone really struggling with, why do I need to be a part of a church? What's the big deal of church. By some estimates, um, in light of COVID, uh, approximately one-third of normal churchgoers have ceased to attend. So people before COVID, you know, a a third of that group are not going back. So I I don't want you to just take the, I mean, please, I don't want any of these books here after this morning. Um, But don't just take the book because you're like, well, it's a free book, so I guess I'll just take it, and then it just sits on your shelf. Take it because, hey, you have a friend who They claim to be a believer, but they don't go to church, or they don't see what the big deal of a church is. You know, ladies' Bible study. If you're going to that, you invited a friend, and they're like, yeah, you know, I don't really have a church, but hey, what's this whole Christianity thing? Take two, okay? Um, Don't just take one. Read it through with your friend, okay? You know, this is why church is essential. Um, So please, all uh, these are going to be up here afterwards. Come up, take all of them. I don't want any of them left. So take two, take three, but use them. So, again, like I said, uh, approximately one-third, this is their estimate, of normal churchgoers have ceased going to church in light of COVID. I would actually contend that COVID was actually just the the tipping of the iceberg, that that it wasn't just just all of a sudden COVID happened and they went, oh, man, I don't don't need church anymore. That that conclusion was actually made a long time prior to COVID. And COVID just forced them to go, oh, yeah, this, this really isn't that big of a deal. No, I would argue that with masks, vaccines, with elections, with riots, with racial issues, and pastors who very obviously are wrong on all those things, I don't need the church anymore. I think that's what you had a lot going on. All of that was building up, and COVID in one sense just kind of pushed those people over the edge. They obviously, the church doesn't have the right answers, they're wrong, so I don't need those people anymore. And you actually have, in light of this, a lot of churches, some of these really big ones, they're creating the online pastor. You have the online pastor job description. So if you go online, you can look up, 
And many of these churches are hiring an online pastor. He's the pastor of their online church, their online community. Um, I'd contend you don't have an online church, but the fact remains you still have churches doing this thing. And so really what uh, Lehman and Hansen are doing in this book is going back to the biblical core of what a church actually is. You have people saying, obviously, the, what the church is doing right now isn't cutting it. We need to rethink church. And what they're saying is, no, we actually just need to rediscover what the Bible says the church is. I, I thought this was, was striking. I've said this many times. One of my favorite authors is David Wells. And he's writing in 2008, but it's one of those things where it's, it's almost just prophetic, where you see what's going on 15, 20 years later. He says this in 2008. The church is not our creation. It's not our business. We are not called upon to manage it. It is not there for us to advance our careers in. It is not there for our own success. It is not a business. The church, in fact, was never our idea in the first place. No, it is not the church we need to rethink. Rather, it is our thoughts about the church that need to be rethought. It is the church's faithfulness that needs to be reexamined. It is its faithfulness to who it is in Christ, its faithfulness in living out its light in the world that should be occupying us. The church, after all, is not under our management, but under God's sovereign care. And what he sees as health is very often rather different from what we imagine its health to be. The church, let us remember, is called the church of God, Galatians 1.13. Churches are the churches of Christ, Romans 16.16, 16, because they are his, bought by his precious blood. Christ not only constituted the church, Matthew 16.18, but God had God has given us the blueprint for its life in Scripture. What we need to do then, first and foremost, is to think God's thoughts after him. Think about the church in a way that replicates his thoughts about it. And that's basically what I want to do. Think about the church the way God thinks about it, as he reveals in his word. And I'm just going to follow that outline of the book. Okay, so that's what you have in your notes. Again, I don't know how long this is going to go, but I'm just going to walk through those points. I actually don't have a copy. I think there's like nine points. Eight or nine, we'll see, until I run out of pages. So number one, a church is a group of Christians. Church is a group of Christians. Now that sounds foundational and duh, but you have to start there. <laughs> you have to start with defining what a Christian is because that will actually lead you to what the church is supposed to do. This is where a lot of churches actually go wrong and get off in their doctrine of the church is because fundamentally they have a different understanding of what a Christian is and therefore what the church is supposed to do. Perhaps it's not in their written doctrinal confessional statement. And this is important because sometimes you'll look up a church online and you, know, you look up their, their statement of faith and you're like, man, they're solid. And then you listen to their preaching and you're like, wait a minute. This has absolutely nothing in common with what you say you believe. This is one of my professors, actually, at, at Masters. He used to say, your theology must become your, bio, must become your biography, meaning what you believe needs to become what you actually live. Or you can also flip it to the inverse, right? Your biography, how you actually live, actually reveals your theology. That actually shows what you believe, how you live. So, the manner of your lifestyle or the way you conduct your church shows what you actually believe. So defining the church, I just make it real simple, um, just what they're using from the book. They would, they would talk about gospel word and a gospel people. So the gospel word does its work in people. 
You could say God's word doing God's work in God's people. That's a church, right? God's word doing God's work in God's people. Preaching and people. I mean, there's so many different ways we can define this. A group of people gathered together that live as a different kind of people. And that's important. I I think maybe discussing this with your non-church or non-Christian friends, right, if you're going through this book with them, I I think that's important because the the church is not a gathering of nice people. It's not a gathering of good people. It's not a gathering of people who are better than everyone else. It's a gathering of new people, that, that we have been born again in Christ. That we're, we're not better than everyone else. I mean, if, you know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful. We, we still struggle with a sin nature. This is why the doctrine of conversion is so important to, to understand and go through this with, you know, your friend. If you're reading this book, is Christians aren't people who get together just to be nice people together. We get together because we have been born again in Christ. We are wretched sinners who have been made new in Christ. And these are some of the verses I have in your notes there. 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ presently, he is a new creation now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We also have Romans 6. Really, all of Romans 6 um, proves this point. But Romans 6, verses 6 to 7, we know that our old self was crucified. The old person has died. But we still see, I would argue in Romans 7, you still see the believers struggle with sin. That, we, we don't, that, that doesn't cease to happen. Rather, Romans 6 would say that we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and continually wage the good warfare. And that's part of what we're doing in the church, is that we're coming together because we need one another's help to fight against sin. So we are a new creation. Without the doctrine of conversion, without the sovereign new birth of Christ, as seen in John 3 and Ephesians 2, there is no church to rediscover. You need to discover church for the first time. If you haven't been born again, and Hansen, at one point in this book, he, he was talking about he had a really hard time dealing with his family because his family were unbelievers, but they knew that church was so important to him. They're like, okay, well, we should go, you know, just because it's important to him, so we're going to go together. And he writes, he, he told them, this is just a quote, there's no intrinsic value to going to church if you don't bother to believe what you're singing, hearing, or saying. And I think that's a good point, is he was saying he was struggling with actually telling his family, stop going to church, because they were using this as like a, well, I'm good because I went to church. Well, if that, no, that that doesn't work that way in scripture. If there's no belief, if there's no faith, if there's no new creation, if there's no new birth, just attending church does absolutely nothing for you. There's no benefit to it. You have to believe that's what a church is, a group of Christians, and that's going to get into membership and discipline, which we'll get into because you have to have some way of saying this is a group of Christians, okay? So that's the first one, group of Christians. Second, who assemble. They assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. There was kind of a running joke, and I thought it was actually pretty funny. 
during COVID that nine marks needs to add another mark, a tenth mark, of meeting. You actually have to meet together. So it's funny. So nine marks was founded by Mark Dever and their church, and I actually, in one sense, agreed with them. They did, no, I don't agree with, the, I mean, let me finish. They did nothing for like months during COVID. They, they didn't meet, they didn't do any online sermons, anything like that. Um, the pastors were emailing and praying for their people because they saw that if we're not meeting together, an essential aspect of the church is missing, okay? And I think we felt that. I don't know about you guys, but like the first Sunday, I, was, I still remember this. Now We were up in Kingsburg seeing family, and uh, we were watching Mark on TV, and she just starts bawling, crying. Um, and I was sad too because I was like, okay, this is not the same thing. Like, this is miserable. Like, I was like, this, this isn't church. And I think all of us felt that, right, to an extent, is that we were missing one another. A church has to actually gather together to constitute a church. You have to meet together. There's a number of verses to support this. It's also just a logical inference. I mean, if pr pretty much all of Paul's letters are written to who? Churches, right? The church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Corinth. Well, how do you know who is and who isn't a part of the church? Who's coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper, to sit under the preaching of the word, to give of our gifts, to participate in corporate worship, right? So this is just, again, I think it's logical, but here's just some verses. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. They as a whole, they gathered together to do those things. Acts 5.12, Many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were in a physical location together, right? Acts 11, 25 to 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They were physically together. Now, maybe you're like, well, yes, duh, but... These are foundational things. We need to go, you know, hey, guys, you know, you have your friend who's saying, oh, I don't really need to go to church. I can just watch it online. Well, wait a minute. What do you do with these texts then? Because the church came together. You just got to go there. Deal with the text, not with me. Acts 20, 7 to 12. On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread. By the way, this, this is the most epic church service ever. Um, maybe, maybe not, but... If, if, you're, if, if you're like, man, Mark's sermon went really long. It did not go this long, okay? Acts 20. This, this is really amazing. Acts 20, verse 7. If you want to turn there. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. He's been going. They really believed in the Bible. I mean, verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, so don't feel too bad if you nod off in church. As Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Verse 10, Acts, Acts 20, verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. So preached all through midnight until dawn, 
And then he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted. I mean, think about this. Mark's preaching a sermon. He's just going, going, going. You know, Timmy's in the back, just keels over dead. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Mark's like, hey, don't worry about this, guys. You know, prays over him, something like that. He gets up dead. Church isn't over. He gets back up and keeps preaching. Now, you don't tell me you wouldn't come away from that greatly comforted. You know, he says, not a little comforted. I mean, I mean, it just goes to show that Acts, in one sense, part of the book of Acts is to manifest and show by the power of the Holy Spirit the authentic nature of the gospel, that it is powerful. And it's one of the reasons why we would be cessationists is because we're not seeing that happen today, right? So anytime you want to complain about Mark's preaching, Mark can go, hey, Acts 20, right? So kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's a good example. Hebrews 11, 24, 25, this is a great verse to go to. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So physically, the church must come together. We have to meet. I could go on and on. New Testament's clear. You cannot physically gather together online. Sure, you can see faces, but you tell me that, you know, you see your son or whoever or your cousin on the, in North Carolina on Zoom, tell me that's the same thing as seeing and hugging them in person, and I'll tell you you're crazy. I mean, it's not. We, we know that. It is not the same thing. You'd much rather see them in person. So, I mean, this is just one of, and I already mentioned this, but why Crossway, during COVID, you know, Mark and Jeremy, we were really intentional, or at least trying to be, that this is not the same thing. We're, we're not meeting. You know, so even in Mark's preaching, he wasn't up, you know, in front of the pulpit. You know, typically he was at his desk, right, and just teaching. He, he spoke in a different manner. We can still learn from teaching and talks online, but we're missing out on an essential aspect of the church if we are neglecting the gathering of ourselves together. Clear on that? I think we get that. <clears throat> I, this is another reason why, with COVID on the decline, at least it seems like that, uh, we'll see, um, with COVID on the decline, we're thinking about more than likely um, stopping the live streaming of our whole service and probably moving more to just our sermon um, because we don't want to communicate that you're participating when in fact you're not, um, that you are actually missing out on something. Um, so that's just one of the things we've been, we've been thinking through. So just as a, I think Mark will mention that in the upcoming weeks as well. So Number three, to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ. So, church is a group of Christians that meet together to proclaim. Number three, to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King. This is what the, the gospel message clarifies what the church is supposed to proclaim. The church and the pastors, their task is clear. The ambassadors, as Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, would say, we're heralds, proclaimers of God's message. We're not free to do with the message what we want to do with it. All right, so in Acts 20, verse 27, Paul, he's charging the elders, and he says that uh, they should imitate him in what? Declaring the whole counsel of God. That's what they're charged to declare. Not Paul's counsel, not the church's counsel, God's counsel, his whole counsel in Scripture. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, not Paul's word, not the pastor's ideas, 
or the ways of cultural opinion. Preach the word. We preach the word. I think we get that for, for pastors, elders. Okay, they need to do that. But the whole church actually has a responsibility to make sure that this is what's being proclaimed. So if you remember the Great Commission, I think I put it in your notes, Matthew 28, 20, what does he say? The, the charge is to, at the very end, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, that's something that we're all supposed to do in discipling one another. It is teaching one another all that God has commanded us in his word. You have that responsibility. The congregation is responsible for the word that's being communicated. If I say something crazy, Lord, hopefully I don't, but Lord willing, you guys would go, ah, Mark, did you hear that? And we confront that. And we go, no, that's not true. And if, you know, I'm like, if I stand upon that, yes, then, okay, we need to deal with this. Or if it's like, you know, I was wrong. I, I humbly admit that I was wrong, which I'm sure has happened. That's what your responsibility is as the congregation. We're not free to change the content of what the church lives on, as many have done in the last century and even before that. The, the responsibility of pastors and all of us is that of a mailman. I like this illustration. We deliver the mail. You know, your postman doesn't come up, sees you have 10 letters, and go, oh, you know, that one's from the IRS, get rid of that one. Well, maybe we hope he would do that. Um, you know, oh, you know, this one, uh, that's not a really good letter. Oh, that's junk mail, gets rid of it. No, the, the postman takes the 10 letters that are addressed to you and gives them. He doesn't open them, change the writing, I don't really like this, get rid of that. We, we don't do that. It's the same thing with God's word. We don't take out the ones we don't like. We deliver the mail. That's what we're charged to do. We can't market or sell the gospel in the church as if it's a product people can purchase. Sure, the gospel and our worship should be accessible and intelligible, meaning we should be able to understand it and be something that we can participate in, but we cannot market it as if it's a product we can just sell, which has really been happening in the last 50 years um, and before that, but in particular. How do we get the gospel in the best way? How do we package it so that way unbelievers can come in? How do we do that? Well, if theologically we understand the gospel, that's a horrible question. David Wells writes about this. Again, David Wells is my guy. I keep referencing him because he's good. And maybe you're like, wow, I should read his books. Yeah, you should. He says this. This is where this gospel really parts company from the way in which products and services are marketed in our modernized world. These products and services are nothing more than products and services. They're simply there for our use. The gospel is not. The gospel calls us not to use it, but to submit to the God of the universe through his son. A methodology for success that circumvents issues of truth is one that will rapidly emancipate itself from biblical Christianity, or, to put it differently, will rapidly eviscerate biblical faith. Listen to this. That indeed is what is happening because the marketing model, if followed, empties the truth out of the gospel. First, the needs consumers have are needs they identify for themselves. The needs sinners have are needs God identifies for us. And the way we see our needs is rather different from the way he sees them. We suppress the truth about God, holding it down in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. We are not subject to his moral law and in our fallenness are incapable of being obedient to it, Romans 8.7. So how likely is it 
outside of the intervention of God through the Holy Spirit, through conversion, how likely is it that we will identify our needs as those arising from our rebellion against God? No, the product we will seek naturally will not be the gospel. It will be a therapy of some kind, a technique for life, perhaps a way of connecting more deeply with our own spiritual selves on our own terms, terms that require no repentance and no redemption. It will not be the gospel. Listen to this. The gospel cannot be a product that the church sells because there are no consumers for it. When we find consumers, we will find that what they are interested in buying on their own terms is not the gospel. Theologically, the gospel is not something that an unbeliever will naturally be drawn to as something so great that they they must have it. The gospel identifies the needs that we have, our need to repent. Our natural condition is not to seek that. So I, I think that's helpful in thinking through what is the task of the church in proclaiming. The gospel is not something that just sounds good to unbelievers. And again, this gets back to what's the purpose of the church? Is it for unbelievers or for believers? Believers, right? It's the gathering of ourselves together for the purpose of reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel and the whole counsel of God. Yes, unbelievers should be invited in and it should be intelligible and they should understand it, but we don't craft our church for them because theologically, the Bible defines that the church is not for them, right? So I could go on and on, but I won't. Number four, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances. Sorry, my voice is giving me fits this morning. To affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances. This is where they kind of get into church membership. I remember he was actually at a sermon at Masters, Mark Dever. He started a sermon with, and, and for me, I was just like, what in the world? He said, if you are not a member of a local church, I seriously doubt whether you're a Christian or not. And I was just, because I was not a member of a local church. And I was like, I think I'm a Christian, though. And what he went through, again, it goes back to that fundamental question, church for believers or unbelievers, but he was trying to stress the significance of the local church, because naturally, we are individualistic people. I don't need all those people. I can just do my own thing. Um, And it was a really provocative way to, to make me think through the importance of the local church, of the congregation. Lehman and Hanson, they say the same thing. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. Perhaps you'll hear someone say, hey, church membership membership isn't in the Bible. Sure. If you mean, you know, like it's a YMCA card to get into the gym. Yeah, it's not in the Bible, okay? But defined biblically, it is in the Bible. Think of 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For For just as the body is one, and has many members. Oh, look at that, members. There you go, if you want a proof text. Members, that's what we're, we're trying to reconcile with that. First Corinthians 12, 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. There's multiple members of the one body. Membership, that's what we're talking about, many members. Church membership, and they get into this in the book, really in one sense also simply means partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, since that's how we recognize one another as believers continually. Actually, we're taking of that this morning. 
That's at least part of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. If you want to turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. In the context, he's actually warning about <clears throat> idolatry um, and participating in it, and then also participating in the Lord's table. But there's some really helpful verses here in thinking through a theology of um, church membership. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, meaning we're participating in him. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For, this is how it's manifest, that we are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So that corporate partaking of the table is what affirms us as believers. That's what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's table. It's our continual walking with the Lord. And part of what Paul goes on then to condemn uh, the Corinthian church for, you can actually flip over, this is uh, 14, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, next chapter. He condemns them for their individualistic thinking about the Lord's table. You know, you'll see, and maybe you have, but you'll see people partaking of the Lord's table at a church camp, at a wedding or at home, you know, with Mountain Dew and Doritos, um, you'll see that, this individualistic thing, well, I, I can just do the Lord's table on my own. Well, the Bible would seem very clear that it's what the church does together, okay? So 1 Corinthians 11, just flip over chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Just notice this phrase over and over and over. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, okay, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? <laughs> I love that. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he's condemning them for their individualistic partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is what the church does together as a whole. Verse 33 so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. So the Lord's table, I could have, I didn't even talk about baptism as the initiatory right into church membership. Baptism, church membership, they all guard against our individualistic tendencies, thinking that we don't need one another. You know, I, I will say this. You don't need to join a church in order to be saved, and certainly attending or joining doesn't make you a Christian. But you do need to join a church to be obedient to the Bible, right? So, I mean, you see, I, uh, the church essentially functions, they use this illustration in the book, kind of as like God's embassy on earth, right? So if you're, you know, if I was over in the Congo or something like that, and I go to the embassy there, the embassy doesn't make me a citizen. 
a U.S. citizen. They simply recognize and affirm that I am a citizen. You know, they give me, I don't know what they would give me, or they just stamp my passport or something like that. They're saying, yes, based on what you've presented us, your, your documentation of being a U.S. citizen, we can affirm that you're a U.S. citizen. Well, the church is pretty similar. It, it does the same thing. We're saying based on your profession of faith, based on what you believe, and based on your manner of life, we can say, yeah, we believe that you're a Christian. I mean, that's what um, Nick did a couple weeks ago when he stood up before the congregation, that we have some people doing that this morning. They're saying, this is what I believe. You guys have seen my manner of life. And the church, when we say, you know, do you accept Joe Schmo into church membership? We say yes, based on their profession of faith. That's what the church is doing. It doesn't make that person a Christian. We're recognizing that profession. And now we're saying we're responsible to care for them, their discipleship, their growth, and they're responsible for the purity and truth of the gospel in the church, okay? So, I'll move on to number five because I'm running out of time here. Number five, and to display God's own holiness and love. This is where they're talking about church discipline. This is another primary reason for the necessity of church membership because you can't discipline out someone who is never in. I mean, it's just a logical inference. You have to have it. This really then is the opposite of church membership. If membership is affirming their profession of faith, discipline then is removing that affirmation of their, of their faith based on sin that is evident in their lives and uh, that they have not repented of and that it's continual. We're saying, okay, we, we don't have reason to believe that you are a Christian. Lehman writes in the book, church discipline isn't about punishment or retribution any more than a failing grade in a classroom is. The point of discipline, like a failing grade, is to push people towards repentance. That's always the goal. Restoration. And that's seen from our two main texts. I won't belabor the point because I think we're relatively familiar with it. But Matthew 18, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Throughout that text, that's the goal, is gaining your brother. Not to like, okay, well, I got to get through this. We can get to step four and get this dude out of here. The goal is gaining your brother and warning them. And then if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5, you have the man caught in sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, Paul writes, when you are assembled... Okay, when the church has come together in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Sounds scary. Yeah, it is. What's the purpose? So that his spirit may be saved. That's always the goal. The goal is that he's under the, the domain of sin and Satan such that he realizes the gravity of his error and repents. That's always the goal. The goal is always restoration. This is one of the reasons why Crossway is a congregational church. We believe the ultimate authority under God's word in the church in matters of doctrine and discipline is the church itself. The whole church, the congregation. Yes, the elders lead. Um, it's funny, I was actually having a good conversation with a friend of mine just thinking through um, 
the difference between elder rule and congregationalism. I think people hear congregationalism and they just think pure democracy and it's just chaos. Everyone's voting on the colors of the carpet or something like that. And it's just not biblically what congregationalism is. We're just looking at these texts and going, okay, well, in matters of doctrine and discipline, it seems that the whole church is responsible. So we're just reconciling those texts. But just in case, you might hear from some people that congregational, congregationalism is unbiblical because you guys vote, and there's no voting in, Bible, in, in the Bible. Let me give you a text that proves my point. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. I heard this, I was like, oh, this is so good. Here's my, boom, Bible verse. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. For such a one, this person whom the church has disciplined out, and they're actually, I think they're bringing him back in. Um, yeah, 2 Corinthians 2, 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. There you go, majority. There were more yeas than nays. There you go. <laughs> now, I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek. But I'm trying to illustrate. I mean, the care for the holiness and love of the church does not fall on the elders only. It's the congregation. Yes, the elders are certainly involved, but it's not as if the congregation just blindly follows them, just sits back, and it's like, yeah, you guys just run the show. No, you guys have, we all have a responsibility for the purity and truth of the gospel. So there's your verse if you want to go to it. All right, number six, because I'm running out of time here. Through a unified and diverse people, a unified and diverse people. Galatians 3, 26 to 28, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, you know, I think how you can understand this passage is that, you know, the ethnic um, social status or, or gender distinctions, those things remain. Paul's not saying that, yeah, there's no such thing as male and female. No, what he's saying is that in the church, in Christ, the unity that we have in him far outweighs anything that would set us apart. So those distinctions still remain. They're not bad, right? It's not that, you know, it's unfair that, you know, I'm, I don't know, 5'11 or whatever, and someone else is taller than me. You know, Brad over there, right? You know, it, that's fine. Like, those things still remain. There's nothing wrong with that. But in Christ, you know, our height difference is not going to drive us apart. <laughs> right? I don't think it would. But, you know, those distinctions are not bad, which I think is actually what you hear a lot of kind of culturally. It's like differences between people are bad. No, they're not. Like, God is calling together all kinds of people. I mean, you see that in Revelation. Every nation, tribe, tongue. I mean, so any type of, you know, racial or ethnic, um, you know, distinction is not sinful. Those things exist. They're part of God's good intent for redemption, right? I love this quote from uh, Don Carson, pretty much just saying the same thing. The church <clears throat> is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. 
In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I don't think I need to say anything else. It's true. Um, just another verse that Lehman, they mentioned this, and I, I knew this to be true, but I needed to be reminded of it. Flip real quick to uh, John 13. John 13, verse 34. We'll wrap up real quick here. <clears throat> I think this is an incredibly convicting and also humbling point that lays even further the necessity of the church. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. Okay, it's not a suggestion. You have to do this. Very clear command from God. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, okay, so, so by the followers of Jesus, by their love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Okay, notice what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that unbelievers will know we are Christians by our love for them, by our love for unbelievers. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't love unbelievers. We most definitely should. But what Jesus is saying here is that unbelievers will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. So your first priority is to love everyone else in this room. That's your priority. That's how the world will know that we are Christians. So for me, I think about that and it's like, man, are we doing a good job of that? Like, does the world know that we are Christians because it's so evident that we love one another? It's very convicting when you think about that. Right? So, I mean, you know, you're, you're again... I don't want any of these books here when I'm done. You're going through this with your friend. Think about that. They're, you know, this lone wolf Christian, I'm just doing my own thing, I don't need the church. Well, how are you obeying that text then? How are you loving other Christians and demonstrating the love of God to the world if you're not a part of the church? You got, you got to deal with John 13, 34, and 35. <clears throat> and just, again, if you guys think that you and I are off the hook, I mean, it, it says... If you have love for one another, um, you know, the manner that we, the, the love that we, excuse me, the love that we need to have for one another is the love that Jesus has for us. Well, what love did he have for us? Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Now, I like a lot of you guys. But if you ask me without reservation, if I would die for you in a moment's notice, I don't know if I can just say, yeah, sure, I would. Right? I mean, think about that. That's the love that we need to have for one another. That self-sacrificing love. So how are we doing on that? The church is a group of people, unified and diverse, that knows they have been loved by God and therefore love one another in the same manner. I'm not going to belabor um, seven and eight. In all the world, I think we're clear on the Great Commission we understand that. Number eight, following the teaching and example of elders, right? First Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, first and foremost, pastors, elders ought to be an example of, we look at and we go, here's what it means to be a godly person. 
You look at uh, 1 Peter 5, and Paul exhorts them, uh, you know, shepherd the flock among you. He's exhorting the elders. But then he says, you know, that we're awaiting the chief shepherd, talking about Christ. See, shepherds, pastors, before they're shepherds, they're still sheep. They're still a part of the church, right? It's not that there's some hierarchy in the sense that, you know, they're, they're greater than us and that they're not responsible, not responsible to follow as sheep. No, they're still sheep. And we need to care for our pastors well. We're all following the chief shepherd, okay? So I'm out of time. That's a very rapid overview of Rediscover Church. Part of your responsibility as members is members' meetings. And we have one of those tonight. So you need to be here, right? Even that is not just a business meeting. That's an act of worship. How are we um, you know, faithfully using the, the funds that God has given us, this building, thinking about all those things? That is an act of worship. It's not just something to attend as a business meeting. So be here tonight at 6. I got a lot of these books. I don't want them, okay? So take one, take two, read them through, read over them, you know, with your friends, okay? All right, you're good. You're dismissed.